standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 242 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am sad about sausages. Well, I'm always pretty happy about sausages, Mick, so I'm going to need some more information on this. Yeah, Jed loves some bollocks and islands. (laughs) (laughs) Some hog nostril pat for Jen, please. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I have to say that I'm a vegetarian. How do you know someone's a vegetarian? They'll tell you. There you go. Just did. And we had discovered an incredible substitute sausage, which is pretty much the only fake meat that I eat. And it was by Taste and Glory and it was incredible. And they've discontinued it, which made me do a big sad face. So we've been trialing other veggie sausages, other vegan sausages, and nothing is quite hitting the mark. Stay away from Richmond. I got some of those by accident and I kept them. They came in a, a Sainsbury's delivery and they've got a real distinct, almost bleachy aftertaste. I can absolutely confirm what Hannah Levy has just reported. I've tried the Richmond and was very much soul and green is people. It was a really weird aftertaste. No, thank you. Greg's better not discontinue a vegan sausage roll or I'll be up in arms. <laughs> Do you know, I've got one solitary share in Greg's. My brother introduced (laughs) me to this trading app, which I keep meaning to tell you about, Hannah, because it's a bit like gambling. Uh, (laughs) Just like put 50 quid on it and sort of move it around. And I bought one solitary share in Greg's because they're quite expensive, actually. And it's doing very nicely. I'm guessing it's the same one that one of the podcasts I listen to, one of the guys on that is... Is vaguely obsessed with buying one share in loads of things. It's sort of like day trading. And then they all gang up together and sell them en masse. And then, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like gambling, which is why I stay away from it. On a Greg's note, though, I just need to tell you both that I saw some Greg's slippers out in the wild. I saw someone out and about oh, in really? some Greg's branded slippers. Incredible scenes. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and Twitter keeps mistaking me for someone who really cares about sports. Well then, Hannah, imagine if you were my poor agent and Twitter thinks that she really cares about Charlton Athletic, so <laughs> could be worse. Well, she has my sympathy, but I have to say, it's not because I interact with any sporting tweets, because I, you know, I might watch a bit of sport on the telly and I might talk about a bit of sport with you or my brother, but I absolutely don't interact with it on Twitter. So that algorithm is fucked. I don't wish to, and let me just state that again, I do not wish to delve into the mind of Elon Musk and his algorithms, because I assume at the moment, because he sacked everyone, it's just him working out what goes where and who sees what. But yeah, the for you thing is weird. I'm like, is it for me? I don't think so, Elon. No, I don't even know who it's for. The bit at the top is always sport for me, always, and quite often American sport. There's no explanation for so many things on Twitter, Hannah. Let's just put this on the list. I realised that it took me a while to get there, but the trending stuff, it tells you what, what it used to anyway, I don't know about the post-Musk world. A lot of the time it would tell you like what it thought you would want to see in trends rather than like what actual trends were. And I remember I'd go on every day and be like, God, people are absolute dickheads, aren't they? Who wants to know about the fucking Kardashians and like, you know, <laughs> this, that and the other? And then I was like, oh, you think I, oh, okay, right. Apparently I'm a dickhead. It thinks that I'm a Peter... Capaldi and a David Tennant fan it always says for you and then it'll have a little bit there's always a tweet about them I don't know why I think it might be I blame Paul Kirkley because I talk to him sometimes and it must think he likes Doctor Who maybe she likes Doctor Who too you do like Peter Capaldi and David Tennant though outside of the Hooniverse right Uh, 
yeah, but not enough that I I need to know on a daily basis what it is that they're up to. More or less than American sports. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably about the same. To be okay, honest. Elon, if you're about listening, and I assume he is, then maybe take this into account. I mean, why isn't it just pictures of fucking cats? Because that's 95% of what I tweet. If the algorithm worked, it would be for you, cats, 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 <laughs> dog every so often, yeah. rabbit, fox. Again, cats, Elon, I don't otters. want to see pictures of fucking cats. I, I don't need to see that. <laughs> I'm Jennifer, and on Sunday big news i ventured beyond the three streets i've repeatedly driven around for the last six weeks for the first time make of that what you will was it like the 1950s the children all flood into the street and start playing hopscotch <laughs> like the streets are clear again do you know what i have been thinking on my learning to drive journey if you will i i hate it i, I don't enjoy it i'm not very good at it it's not a nice experience for me it makes me very stressed and then when I got out of Gravel Hill Way <laughs> and and the uh, surrounding roads for the first time, I was like, this is all right, actually. I'm nowhere near as shit as I thought I was. And actually, this is quite fun. Oh, interesting. Did, did some music kick on the stereo at that point? Yeah, it was like, how like, to, run come to on or the yeah. danger zone. <laughs> and off I went 28 miles per hour in third <laughs> gear. Thank you very much. <laughs> My driving instructor back in the day, he had a golf convertible, which was great fun to drive around in when you're learning. And he would turn up with the top down and he'd be like, Mickey, where do you want to go today? And I'd be like, can we go somewhere I can go really, really fast, please, Dave? And he'd be like, yeah. And we'd be behind a car and I'd be like, oh, it's, I'm, I have to slow down. And he said, he'd be like, no, overtake him, overtake him. And I'm like, Dave, if I overtake, I'm going to have to break the speed limit. And he'd be like, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. Maybe not what you want from a driving instructor, but I'd overtake. And he'd be like, guess how foot up they're going to be that they were overtaken by a learner in a better car. Yes. <laughs> he was excellent. Three times it took me to pass, though. So, you know. <laughs> well, I'll never be able to get a test. So we may never find out. But, um, you know. Yeah, I put in for it now, Jen. Probably not until like September or something. I think I'm going to approach with caution. Coming up, I chat to Sally Shaw, director of First Sight Colchester, about the new Big Women exhibition and the cultural heritage of Essex. I got on the Zoom with award-winning actor Bucky Bakray, star of the film Rocks, currently on our screens in Netflix's new psychological twister, The Strays, and about to make her stage debut in Sleepover at the Bush Theatre. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we're all about equality, diversity and inclusion. It's political correctness gone mad, like. <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, again, again... We revisit 1993's Groundhog Day. That was me trying to do Sonny and Cher, but I don't think it worked very well. I'm joined by Sally Short, director of First Sight Colchester. Sally's here today to talk to me about the new exhibition, Big Women. Hello, Sally. Thank you for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. I, I am a, a local, so uh, I know all about First Sight. I love it. I take my daughter there. Yay. There's quite a lot of Lyra's artwork somewhere. In <laughs> Is there? Possibly in the bin now, but uh, at no, some no, point. No, 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 no. Nothing goes in the bin. No artworks go in the bin. Brilliant. Ever. Well, then uh, her early efforts have been recorded for posterity somewhere in the, yes. I don't know, basement of First Sight. There'll be, there'll be in our rapidly growing collection of artworks by everybody. Brilliant. <laughs> But for the listener, could you tell me a little bit about First Sight, first of all, please, Sally? Yeah, uh, well, we opened in 2011. We were built as a regeneration project for cultures, really. So it's about kind of culture, 
playing a really important part in the city and how we keep making Colchester amazing. You know, it has 2,000 years of brilliant history, but that history needs to be continually made every single day. And first sight's a big part of that. But the way we go about doing regeneration with culture in first sight is very particular and it's quite radical compared to maybe other galleries across the UK, partly because Colchester is quite a radical and, and tricky place. First sight is gold and mm. crescent shaped and really fancy as a building. You know, it's award winning architecture and all that, you know, everything you would expect from a contemporary art gallery. And I think when it was built, they thought that that's what regeneration means. It means a gold art gallery. Uh, and it does in part mean that, and it's a good start. But actually, for me, what it means uh, in 2023 is actually about doing things like giving away free meals to children who live in the area who can't afford to eat during the school holidays and inviting their whole families in to have food, but then also to make stuff like your daughter's been doing and to get really stuck right into making stuff, make a drawing, and then put it up on a wall next to Maggie Handling, why not? So that's real regeneration for me, and that's very creative regeneration. So that's what we do at First Sight, is we connect people back with their own imaginations, encourage people to use their imaginations to see themselves and the world very differently, and then make individual little visions of what that world could look like in the future. Because when you do that, if you can make a picture... Use your imagination to make a picture of a vision of yourself in the future, and then you can draw that down. If you do that process, you're nine times more likely to make that into a reality, which is a really powerful, powerful tool to have in your kit. It is kind of interesting because you do have, like, listeners of the podcast will know I am from Essex myself. I grew up in Harwich, you know. I spoke to someone from Colchester Castle recently about an exhibition there, about the, the witchcraft exhibition at Colchester yeah, Castle. So you do have all of this history in Colchester. It's this amazing, historic, Britain's oldest recorded town. Fact Indeed, fans. yes. Tick. And Well, it's now a city, obviously. But it well, is... I like the fact that we're like the oldest city and the newest city simultaneously right now. I think it's brilliant. It's very Colchester. I didn't That's know weird. that actually yeah. but of course that makes sense it's so rich in history and you have like this this big bloody gaudy gold art gallery literally next door to a, a medieval castle which yeah. is built on the foundations of like the temple of claudius and in the middle of this golden monstrosity really but it's beautiful i love it uh, you have this ancient mosaic like Mm. tiled floor I don't know I think that's kind of amazing what do you think I think it's brilliant but I think that's very Essex you know if you imagine all of those things when they were built at their time so the castle the mosaic when it was an original floor in a in a you know a posh house in the like the equivalent of the west end of Colchester I like to think of you know it was like the Roman equivalent of Offenbeck's house or something like that Like when that when all of those things were made and they were brand new, they would have been like hyper new technology at the time. And First Sight's building was exactly that when it was built as well. And that's very Essex. We're very into newness, nowness, the next thing. You know, Towie is very much about a brand new image, I would say, of Britishness in many respects. So it's a county that's always been on the cutting edge of everything. The invention in Essex, and in particular in Colchester, has been extraordinary. So 
Gilbert in Colchester was the person who coined the term electricity. But he's not that well known because actually no. all of his research burnt in the in the fire of London. So not that well credited because it was all whatever and just went up in smoke. Also, fiber optic cables are Essex, radio is Essex, credit cards are Essex. All these really important, quite everyday inventions have come out of this area. And I just think that's really significant. I don't know anywhere else like it, but it's got this weird image, Essex, as well, of being a bit rubbish. But I don't understand how that's the case when it's got this like insane story going on through it. Like, how have we been labeled like that? What's happened there for that to have been the case? So there's a job to be done to kind of reset the balance because we're all of those things all at once. And that's actually what makes Essex and Colby brilliant. So can you tell me a little bit about the exhibition? You've got some really big names involved. Obviously, it's curated by Sarah Lucas, but some of the names that people recognise, Pam Hogg, Maggie Hamblin, Gillian Waring. Can you tell us a little bit about Big Women, what it is and, and how it's come about? Well, Big Women is it's like a little bit like a like a walk-in manifesto <laughs> or I should say one manifesto you know to use yet another cliche it's an exhibition of works by I think it's 24 artists all female all at a certain kind of life moment and maybe career moment as well some of them you'll know of some of them you will not know of and even the names that you'll know of have had you know challenging time to kind of keep themselves in the limelight because they're women you know if you look at what happens to women across the board in any profession, they get to a certain point and it's very easy to get deleted and overlooked and overshadowed by men because we do things like have families and raise children and that takes you out of the limelight. So I think a lot of these women have made particular choices that have you know, taken them down different paths, but Sarah has done this wonderful job of bringing them back together again in a show that really celebrates their creativity. And it's really punk. <laughs> it's like you'd think that, a, you know, a show with 24 women over the age of the 50 might be a bit doily, but it is the opposite of doily. It is absolutely fantastic. First and foremost, it's really funny. There are some hilarious artworks in the show. You walk in through the front doors of First Sight, and if anyone's been there recently, you'll have seen... Michael Landy's giant Essex man, you know, he's a beast. He's eight metres tall with his can of lager, big sculpture. And Sarah's put one of her bunnies uh, right between his legs. And so the bunny sculptures, um, Sarah's been making them for, for many years. And they they look like sort of female figures and they're all made out of sort of squishy, saggy tights. So they just look hilarious. They look like how I look like on like Saturday morning when I've kind of given up and I'm sitting in my armchair in the front room and every possible roll of everything is squishing out of my trousers in every direction. But that's what I look like, you know. <laughs> it's like so there's this brilliant sculpture of uh sort of a female form slouched in an armchair between the legs of Essex man. And it's just like a big V's up to Michael Landy and Essex Man and Michael Landy and Sarah Lucas are pals so it's kind of a joke that we could all get away with and enjoy so it sort of starts off there and it's it's starts with this very funny kind of arm wrestle between men and women at the front but it's very kind of transparent humor it kind of takes all of the good and the bad of those cliches about men and women and celebrates and enjoys that 
But what it does by doing that is kind of make you look at everything else. It makes you go, oh, my God, OK, this is really complicated. It looks really simple. It's just a boy sculpture and a girl sculpture next to each other. But actually, that's a really complicated thing. And then in the rest of the show, there's just more and more and more works that just kind of take a pop at stuff or just vent some anger at something. Or, you know, there's a beautiful sculpture by Maggie Hambling, which is just a really brilliant material joke in a way. So, uh, Maggie had a, a very famous muse for a long time, a woman who died some years ago of di diabetes related problems. But when she was dying of these sort of health challenges, she decided to start eating meringues a lot, which as you know, for a diabetic is <laughs> a really ideal. bad idea. <laughs> it's a really bad idea. So the sculpture is this big squishy thing that I think the original wasn't as big as this, the one that we're showing. So it's like a big squishy lump of plaster that's been squished by hand. So you can see thumb marks. It's like the best sculpture you never made. It's just like plaster in a gloopy blob. And then that messy thing has been scanned with a 3D scanner. And then it's been reprinted with a 3D printer from a, from a resin block. So it's been through this hyper digital process, really precise. And then it's been enlarged and printed and so you've just got a really big squishy blob now. <laughs> so it's just like, it's, that's a ridiculous thing to do, to take a squishy blob, put it through the most precise digital high-tech process you can possibly think of to just produce a bigger squishy blob at the other end of it. It's just hilarious and very beautiful and very tactile. Don't touch it. <laughs> There's some amazing portraits. There's some amazing sculptures. Renata Adela has made this incredible canvas figure of a woman it's kind of it's like the torso and the legs of a woman giving birth <laughs> it's just amazing and this body is kind of popping out these strange cosmic babies she calls them so it's just full of really funny extreme strange wonderful witty colorful artworks by the most incredible group of women ever it's brilliant <laughs> You've got some brilliant quotes from Sarah on the First Sight website. She says, the older woman is often overlooked irrelevant without currency. And so she wanted to sort of create this or curate rather this exhibition that put the spotlight on these women that she feels have been overlooked. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that women are overlooked in, in almost all areas of the world ever, basically. <laughs> but progress is being made in the art world. I spoke to Katie Hessel last year who wrote The History of Art Without Women. Yeah. And that became Waterstone's book. book of the year. I mean, she herself is, you know, a, a bright young thing. But do you think the <laughs> efforts of people like her, do you think that the, the lens is kind of being turned back on female artists now in a way that it possibly hasn't been previously? Yeah, and I think that's a continual piece of work. You know, that's been ha that's been gradually happening for a long time. We, we can't forget the work of everybody that's come before. Of course. Yeah. You know, Katie's able to write that book now and it's able to be a bestseller now because of thousands of books that were written beforehand too. And may there be many, many more because there's so much more to say. <laughs> you know, Mary Beard, also another fan of Mary Beard. Um, she wrote uh, a very tiny book called uh, Women and Power, which yes, is two essays. It's brilliant. Really brilliant book. Mm. But she talks about the idea of the silhouette of power and how it's been a certain shape. But that, that shape has been in place for 3,000 years. So we've got 3,000 years at least of rewriting 
to do. <laughs> We've got to just remember to continue to do the re rewriting from now on so that it, it no longer gets forgotten. So it's an incredibly powerful thing to do, you know, and the, the more we do it, the more we make visible everything. And that's what art galleries are brilliant for. It's that is our job is to make things visible. And that's what artworks do, is they bring ideas out of your mind into living. So the more we make that visible for ourselves, but also the next generation and the previous generation, because we're all still in it together, the better. And we've got to do that together. You know, we, we can't do that at the expense of older people or younger people or anyone, really. We've got to kind of create the spaces for all of that to be possible simultaneously, because it is simultaneous when I look out the window. Nothing separated up like like it is in history. You know what I mean? History's really tidy. It's like <laughs> life's not like that at all. So Sarah's show is also really quite messy, and rightly so, because that's much more realistic. That's a much more realistic experience or representation of what the world is perhaps more like for everybody. So there's another quote from Sarah on the website, and I, I think that I would probably quite like Sarah. And she says that Big Women is an endorsement and celebration of women's achievement in the creative field and adds, God knows we need it in these times dominated by male aggression, politicking, greed, war and pig-headedness. <laughs> you know, don't hold back. She's not shy, no. <laughs> we certainly don't on the podcast. I wondered, sort of related to that, what you thought about the impact of the current hellscape that we, we are living in. <laughs> the hellscape. The hellscape <laughs> we're living in politically, socially, whatever, on the arts. Like on one hand, I imagine money is quite tight. On the other, yeah. great artistic works can come from dark times. <laughs> That's another conundrum, that one. I mean, that often gets said as well, because, you know, but that then just reinforces this idea that actually artists don't need paying. They're much better off when they're starving and miserable, which isn't true. They're just starving and miserable. You know, imagine what ideas they'd make if they weren't starving and miserable. Like, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it, though? Come on, if we really got art and if schools were encouraged to teach art and creativity and all that weird thinking. And like, and my other scary fact about creativity, a child at the age of five spends 95% of their time in a divergent thinking space. So that's the thinking space where you're turning cardboard boxes into spaces. You're inventing, you're creating, you're imagining, you're playing, uh, and you're you're not sort of weighed down by the, uh, the huge ton of rules that you gradually learn, many of which are not good. But that you're 95% of your time in that incredibly creative thinking space. So that's when you just go into primary school education. When you leave primary school education at the age of 11-ish, that flips around entirely and you only spend 5% of your time in that imaginative space. That spells really bad news for GDP if you want to cut to the chase. You know, it's not, it's not great for productivity of any nation or any community of people if we are teaching our children to not use their imaginations at a really early age. You know, the woman that invented the vaccine for COVID was using that bit of brain. You know, she explored that idea. It wasn't an existing thing. It was massively the faith. She created that idea and she made that thing and it became a vaccine that has saved millions of people's lives. So that's a really big problem. Why don't we celebrate that? Why don't we enjoy that? 
it's it's the most basic human thing. That's what sets us apart, apparently, is the fact that we have imaginations and we can think like that. If we put in like 10% more, which actually isn't very much, 10% of the Arts Council, you know, the government's investment in the arts, 10% more would create an, a, a massive groundswell of creativity across the entire nation at a time when we really need to think differently and create new solutions. One of the only good things that came out of COVID was the fact that we all started working completely differently with very different people. We just hopped over boundaries that were there before and then all of a sudden weren't to just create new collaborations and do things differently and do it quickly. There was this huge upswelling of agility and creativity. And you can see that that's already decreased again since. That was one of the only good things to come out of the last few years. And it's the thing that we all got really excited about at the time. Well, some of us did if we were able to. But it's it's going again. But I just don't understand that. I don't understand the logic to then not investing more in that way of thinking. It seems crazy to me to have had such a fundamental change. If I were a cynical person, which, of course, I'm not, I'd say it would suit some of the people in power if people didn't think that creatively. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's true. I, I think it's quite a scary prospect. When you think like that, you kind of have to share power at that point. And that's really dicey territory for most politicians. It's not really about sharing power. And I think that's probably the same for a lot of the cultural sector. I'm just going to stick my hand up and say that. It's about power, ultimately. But everything that we've done at first sight has been about sharing every single resource we have. The more I've given stuff away for free, Mm. the better off we have become as an organisation. So in the last... Six years, I've almost doubled my turnover, and that is throughout COVID. Mm. And that is because we've been giving things away as fast as we can get them. And it's actually a really productive, generous, regenerative, creative, and collaborative way of working. And it, But it's also much more sustainable. It's a much more sustainable way of being. But that's a big shift. That's, a, that's an economic shift, not just a creative shift. That's a philosophical and economic shift one structure to another or a new type of structure that maybe is a bit hybrid between the two because there's things about the way that we do stuff at the moment that are actually quite good so i don't know it's about seeing things differently big women is at first sight colchester until june 18th and you can follow first sight on twitter and instagram at first sight and at first sight colchester where can we follow you sally on instagram i'm at sally sarah shaw and that's the only one that i really do because it's pictures hooray art in it yeah sally thank you so much for joining me <laughs> pleasure hello i am joined on the zoom by award-winning actor bucky buckrate superstar of the film rocks on our screens in netflix's new psychological twister the strays and about to make her stage debut in matilda feige Bini's sleepover at the bush theater bucky hello Hello. Keeping busy, eh? Yes, um, it's really, really special time right now. It really is. I've not even mentioned your directorial debut with short film Born Fruit, but we will get to it. Let's start, if you don't mind, with Rocks, because it is such an astonishing, raw, beautiful, raucous bit of cinema. What was it like to film? It was amazing. It just felt like secondary school without all the worst bits of secondary school. <laughs> like, we were all just having fun Waking up at 5am wasn't an issue for me or any of the other cast members. It was just loads of fun, loads, lots of laughter. 
it was difficult at points, but we didn't, I didn't, un, at the time, I didn't understand that this was something that was difficult. My body was just reacting in ways that shows me later on in life that this was, yeah, this was hard. But in the moment, it's like my head refused to like compute anything difficult as difficult because it was so fun at the same time. And it was all about the power of female friendship, or that was one of the, the huge themes in it. And obviously, you all workshopped it loads. But was Rocks a reflection of how you view your friendship group? For sure. I think it's definitely one strand of it. I think my friendship group is full of people who are so like unique. And although like I think Rocks and everyone in Rocks, like they could definitely identify with that. I definitely think my my friendships are one different, like special entity. But like in saying that Rocks was a wonderful like ode to how I feel about my friends and how friendship was for me and my friends growing up. It was full of these young women who would ride out for each other, and I think that's what they showed. That's what we saw. That's what we saw in Rocks. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think it's um. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful old. I think loads of viewers totally fell in love with her and with you as that character. Is it a character that you think you'll carry with you forever? A hundred percent. Rox is someone who I struggled to understand that this was me. This was the version of me at a point in time. And I think that's probably why like, I rejected the film when I first watched it. Me and the me and Kosa Ali, who played Samaya, like we were both like this film is horrible. Yeah. That wasn't obviously true because of like the reception it got, but we we felt that way because we we rejected that point in time. We had we didn't have love for that version. I had no love for Rox at one point in my life, but now as I've gotten older and like I've I've left my adolescence, like I understand that like, this Rox is so important to me who I was at that point, like in a similar fashion to like rocks that that version of bookie is also important and Mm -hmm. i think going through the whole filming process made me realize that and leaving it afterwards as well i will always remember rocks she made me realize things about myself she made me want more for myself she opened up a next level of empathy for my peers and myself that i never had which i'm truly grateful for I'll tell you what, when Rox and Samaya fall out for a bit, oh my God, it's so horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, but it's so true, like, it happens, and that's how young people fall out. But it's, it's, the falling out's not real, because, yeah, you can you can do, you can be mean to each other, but when you need each other, like, you forget all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the one thing that I can always say about these kinds of friendships, like, they're true riders, they will be ride out for each other. At that point, that friendship, like, those are the small things later on in life means so much to young people. And friendship is one of them. Mm-hmm. The way we structure friendships when we're young, like, people stand in front of a bullet for them. And I I think when we say that, we, we believe it. Like, that whole ride or die mentality, like, that's, there's, that's what we say because I think that's what we truly believe. And I feel like that's the energy Samaya was on for us. Totally, totally. Okay, let's talk sleepover. How are you feeling about the transition from screen to stage? I feel frightened and I feel embarrassed and I feel grateful that I have I have those feelings. I feel really embarrassed all the time. And that's kind of how I felt when 
in points in rocks so it makes me feel like I'm in the right place of like my body's really being stretched to corners that never thought it could stretch to and like it's fear to such a different ball game it's like uh-huh. my respect for like theatrical performances has gone from like a hundred to a thousand because it's <laughs> it's a big it's a big thing to do it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of work embarrassed is a really interesting word like i'm mm. not sure i understand is it a shyness or what well, i don't understand why you're embarrassed when you're so talented <laughs> no I, I mean thank you so much but i mean well i mean embarrassed because it's the same feeling that i would get when i it's it, embarrassment is the feeling feeling like you're like you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing like you're being truthful I get for me as bookie, I I get really embarrassed when I'm telling the truth and I feel like what's surrounding me is not taking it. And I think that's what life is. Like I think life for a lot of people and like people like myself is constant embarrassment because your truth feels so unnatural to the point where when you when you are truthful you feel you feel vulnerable, you feel mm-hmm. you're like your red your your blood ru- rushes to like the, the surface of your cheeks it's that embarrassing that's an embarrassing feeling and I feel like I feel that with like this theater so I'm doing things that like I'm really coming out of my comfort zone and like doing that and not being sure of how people are received it because I'm in my head I'm not watching myself that's what makes me feel like oh what I'm doing is so embarrassing because it's so unnatural to the the still boring normal straightforward bookie that like or person that we are when we're like walking you know do you know what I mean yeah I I get it I get it as for me in sleepover you're back in school at least for bits of it and back exploring female friendship could you tell us a little bit more about the storyline please so it's about these these young girls who I always describe the the play as like embodied nostalgia It's, it's a really like a nostalgic piece about a moment in time and these women we meet them at points of their lives where they're really like exploring their identity without typical introspection they they are questioning themselves well the the world surrounding them is forcing them to question themselves and forcing them to grow up and they meet at these sleepovers and the sleepovers are it, it's time for them to just really be there for each other and love each other and like and laugh with one another but it's like life happens and then the sleepovers happen and then life and we see what they bring from the world into these like really intimate sacred spaces where they they meet with one another and it just shows like the luggage of the world and how that affects young people within their friendships that the friendship groups is almost like a political party it's like they're truthful in what they say and it's sacred and they outlandish and they're like they're brutally honest about what everything's surrounding them they they grieve they they bereave their younger selves in some aspect because by the end of the play it's like they've all grown up and we can see and feel the changes within their spirits and how they react to stuff and it just shows what growing up does to people what it does to your spirit and that's why I like by it, even performing it and like physically growing into the characters and growing up as the time goes by, it re- really makes me realize like growing up is 
it's wonderful, but it's also like really sad at the same time because the really giddy and like jolly parts of yourself end up just being like the flame just gets blown away because life happens. You start to grieve, you start to feel pain, you start to have to work, you start to have to do things to survive. And like life's not just about laughing and going to secondary school. <laughs> As someone a lot older than you, you can still be an absolute giddy kipper. Please, please keep that giddy kipper alive. <laughs> There's a really powerful quote that they're using about the play, which obviously I haven't seen because it hasn't opened yet. But the line is, we don't get to choose when we become women. And that is, it's such a striking mm. line. Mm. Do you feel like you've been forced to grow up quite quickly? Yeah, I think, I think, if you look at like growing up as like a bar chart, there are these different bars and the different bars have these different parts of life and survival and things you need to do, right? And I think being a woman, being one of them, I think for a lot of girls, that part of the bar chart shoots up really quickly like parts of being a woman shoots up really quickly in comparison to like men in some aspects. And it's for them, like parts of their bar chart shoots up that in parts of our one wouldn't shoot up. So I guess there's like different levels to growing up and womanhood and like manhood, but specifically like we're talking about womanhood. I think that we see that like there's parts of being there's like this whole thing we've been speaking about during rehearsals about like women girls having to grow up quicker because their surroundings force them. Alia Odafin, one of the performers in this, and she plays the character of Shanice, and she said that you your surroundings force you to see yourself much quicker as a woman in comparison to other beings, and I think that's so true because think about girls like. Some girls get their periods in secondary school. Some girls grow physically different and they appear to be, they look like a woman much quicker. Like, yeah. And I think that happens with a lot of young people being forced to like grow up that quickly when your mind is still in like the frame of like a child. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult having to be something, but the world sees you as another, as another thing. And I think that's what, they kind of talk about when they're in the sleepovers, but without understanding like that's what happened, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. They don't understand they're being adulterized. They don't understand that this, that part of their bar chart has like shot up sporadically without the knowledge because that's, it's shot up to the rest of the world, but to them, they're still a level one. Yeah. So it's about having to fight with that and having to like, I don't know, having to just, it's a, it's a constant fight to be honest young people and growing up because you're going through so much hormonally as well so I feel I feel like there's so much to think about that's why I like the sleepovers feel so sacred and like political and like weighted is because they're they're talking about some really really big things to them when the external change doesn't match the internal change it can be mm. a real like push and pull situation with no easy answers at all you just have to mm -hmm. power through it yeah. I'd like to talk about the strays very briefly. At the moment when we're chatting, it's not out yet and it is very secretive around it with Netflix mm -hmm. have held back a lot of stuff. But when this airs, it will be on the telly. So can you tell us about the strays? Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about it? Yeah, so the strays is 
a it's a psychological thriller about a woman who who had children and the life that she had when she had these children wasn't amazing she so she decided to move on and have another life and she had these other children but the children that she left from her past life have come back to seek vengeance on her for leaving them astray basically and you're one of those kids aren't you i play one of the kids yeah and that's basically what happens it's like a it's a comment on family um spectrum and vengeance and like family trauma dysfunction like this this like this show this this play sorry like this this film is like (laughs) all right you've got a lot going on (laughs) (laughs) this play this film sorry is a big domestic but it's not being explored as in like one big argument in the living room it's got different strands to it these two kids they try and seek vengeance they try and do physically what she did to them ment- mentally for all those years where she was absent. The actors in it, like the guy who plays my brother, he's Jordan Murray is incredible. Maria and Samuel, who play the children, are like amazing. And of course, like Ashley Imadekwe and Justin Sanger, like every everyone in it is like really really amazing but i want to just make a point about the kids in it performing with them it felt really really amazing because how they made life to these characters and gave these characters so much humanity was like incredible because when we were making the film we was we didn't really talk about making the characters who were like crazy we were talking about these humans who were like distressed mentally and it just made me kind of realize like people that we see in humanity who are like crazy or distressed or like thriller type figures it all stems from like trauma and things that it's all possible for us to go through basically yeah yeah well it sounds meaty i'm excited to watch it thank you so i want to ask you how it was creating directing and starring in born fruit Oh, um, wow, thank you for asking me about this. It was so fun to do. It was definitely one of the joys of, like, early joys of my career. Um, it was hard. It was hard. Like, I never knew I could get, like, a twitch in my eye from stress. And that happened <laughs> on that job because it was, because I was filming at the same time as well. So it was really, like, mm, stressed, but it was so fun. And I, being able to choose who I can work with and creating that environment on set. And everyone really believed in what we were making, even though it was really, it was a really abstract piece, but everyone connected with it because everyone, it was like a symphantic, like empathy that was running around the set for the subject matter and the story. And everyone knew that what we were making was someone's truth. So they respected it. And I could have never asked for a set like that for my first try at direction and starring. And it was a lot to do, for one person to do. Mm-hmm. But everyone created an environment for me to do that. And Dazed were amazing. Gucci were there. And it was like, we had these really cool collaborators who wanted to come together and make something that was really stunning. And like I would like love to work with Dazed again. 
Um, I've never thought that my first film would be like a fashion slash narrative film, but I'm grateful that the fashion house were able to like honor my 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 need to have to make this link to typical film narration because that's where I come from. Mm-hmm. I don't come from a world of fashion. I come from a world of storytelling, and it was nice to understand that there was there was a link there. There's always been a link there, but it's just a different language. Yeah, yeah. I love, I loved it. I loved it. So many amazing people to work with. You've used the word first there a couple of times, so I'm excited. Does it mean you'd like to do more directing? One hundred percent. My background in the arts was I was a painter. I liked painting first. I studied art. So I always had the idea that I would never be a muse. I would focus on a muse. So directing was really fun for me because it was it gave me a chance to focus on the bigger picture. And that's something I always thought I would end up doing. So I look forward to being a filmmaker as well as a performer so I can look at things holistically a lot more. Because when you're an actor, it's like you're in the space, you're in it, you're in it. Mm-hmm. But being able to have a perspective for what you're making from a bird's eye view, I think I would love the opportunity to do that again. Bucky, it's been a total pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mickey. Sleepover is at the Bush Theatre, London, from February the 24th to April the 8th, and more information and tickets are available at bushtheatre.co.uk. The Strays is on Netflix. You can watch Born Through on YouTube, and you can catch what Bucky is up to if you follow her on Twitter at Bubooks, which is at B-B-U-K-K-X. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we pay homage to women by relating them to men, as we discuss all things women's sports. Ofs, that was a lols, and made in part to obscure a bit of a boo-boo I made in last week's Jenny Off The Blocks when I was chatting about the England women's team and not knowing why they weren't participating in the She Believes Cup. Lads, it's because they're competing in the other thoughtlessly named women's football tournament, the Arnold Clark Cup. Who's Arnold, I hear you ask? He's something to do with cars. And as I've said before, I welcome his interest in women's sport, just not his willingness to make it all about him. But there you have it. Anyway, if you're interested, the teams competing alongside England are South Korea, Belgium and Italy. We've won both our matches so far and we face Belgium tonight. If you're listening on Wednesday, if we beat them, we retain the Arnold Clark Cup. Serena Wiegmann is apparently having a hell of a time selecting the team because she has so much choice. It's a good position to be in, but it does bring us back to a few issues we've been chatting about over the last year, one of which being, for all that choice, there is not a lot of difference. Wiegmann, when asked about this at a press conference, referred to the FA's relaunched elite pathway for girls football, one of the reasons for which is to stop women heading to the US to play instead of the UK, basically because in the US there may be a scholarship waiting for you. One of the ways they hope to increase the pool from 1,722 players to more than 4,200 in their talent programmes is by the establishment of more emerging talent centres, something which was announced back in July last year in collaboration with the Premier League. And as I have said before, the big clubs really do need to put their hands in their pockets if they want to benefit from all this, in my opinion. 
Vigman said it cannot change overnight, which is a fair comment, but it has actually regressed since 2007 if we're talking about diversity in the squad. Back in 2007, there were six black, Asian and minority ethnic players and in the Euro last year, there were three mixed heritage players. Neither Jess Carter, Nikita Paris or Demi Stokes made the starting eleven during that tournament. It's concerning, but I do think it's probably part of a much more complex set of circumstances than the headlines necessarily imply. My fave, Emma Hayes, has weighed in on the debate now to add that she thinks that the diversity concerns don't start and end with ethnicity and that class is increasingly a factor. Women's football is quite middle class, in my opinion, she said. In terms of locations and the pedigree of players that are coming in from the suburban and urban belts around the training grounds. If you want a diverse group involved with our game at an elite level, then perhaps we should be travelling into the cities more. While we're on the subject of equality, diversity and inclusion, let's look at rugby now and the announcement last week that the Rugby Football Union have launched a groundbreaking new maternity, pregnant parent and adoption leave policy for contracted England women's players. The RFU said in a statement that it would support the right of the player who wishes to continue to be involved in the team while ensuring that the safety of the player and the unborn child are considered first, as well as providing six months maternity leave on full pay, which I can tell you is considerably higher than many, many women get, and for opportunities to move into other safe employment within the rugby network until they go on maternity leave. This is really significant from the RFU and let's see more of it, please. Now, look, as I speak, the England cricket team are also doing brilliant things, having just posted a record women's 2020 World Cup score of 213 for five against Pakistan. They were already guaranteed a place in the semi-final, but their efforts will see Pakistan eliminated from the tournament. And I think it means we're going to top the group and swerve Australia in the semi-finals. And that semi-final that we play in, I think, I hope, will be on Friday with the final on Sunday at 1pm our time. Get in. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film in which Andy McDowell dresses like she works behind the bar on a cross-channel ferry (laughs) did we watch this week? This week we watched Groundhog Day, brought to us by the dream team of Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. Ramis, a.k.a. Egon Spengler, co-wrote the screenplay with Danny Rubin, while Murray stars as Phil Connors, a weatherman, an absolute bellend, who quite deservedly (laughs) finds himself stuck in a time loop, forcing him to relive February the 2nd over and over again. It wasn't a great day to start with, but it ends up being all kinds of days the more he relives it. Sort of unbelievably, but when you think about it, it actually makes perfect sense. Rubin's initial inspiration for the film was the second of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles trilogy, The Vampire Lestat. I don't know why specifically that one, I've not read any of them, but a fact which also alludes to the deeper themes underpinning the film, which, sad times, ended the artistic partnership of Murray and Ramis. Murray wanted to focus on the deeper themes, Ramis on the comedy, and the pair fell out over it big time, only reconciling shortly before Ramis's death in 2014. Rubin wanted to look at how a man might live his life if it had no end, and how it would change a, and I quote, self-centred adolescent-like adult protagonist, 
Though the tone of the film changed somewhat in development, Rubin's original screenplay was more about loneliness and the human condition, while the end result is a bit more on the rom-com spectrum. And so to the plot, Phil Connors is a conceited, self-centred weatherman sent to cover the annual Groundhog Day celebrations in, I'm going to struggle with this, Punxsutawney, Philadelphia, along with producer Rita, played by Andy McDowell, and cameraman Larry, played by Chris Elliott. He's not a happy bunny about the assignment. He thinks everyone is an idiot and that he's above this kind of caper and is desperate to leave. He wakes on February the 2nd to the Sonny and Cher classic, I Got You Babe, on the radio, but fate conspires against him as a blizzard he had previously told viewers would miss them does in fact hit, forcing him to stay overnight. He wakes again in the same hotel the next morning, still February the 2nd, and every morning thereafter, with a variation of the same day. Upon realising that he's stuck in a time loop, he decides to use it to his advantage, enacting various nefarious doings like manipulating women into sex. Uh It was a different time. Mm. But after attempting unsuccessfully to get into Rita's pants, he becomes rather depressed with it all and sets upon a series of lols suicide attempts. (laughs) Jen, I've just got to say, by the way, that when I was watching that, I went, oh, it's the, the suicide lols bit. Is exactly what I said. I will talk about that later. We'll get to it. So he doesn't die because he can't. And after a time, he tells Rita of his predicament. And after sharing a tender moment she won't ever remember, he sets about living his best as opposed to worst life. Now realising that he has in fact fallen in love with her. But will he ever get to knob her? And will he ever get to leave the loop? Hilarity ensues. It was a box office smash and one of the biggest films of 1993, earning $105 million worldwide from a budget of, and this is, I will grant you this is quite a big region, uh, but from a budget of 14 to $30 million. So, what's, no. what's like $60 million among friends, hey? I don't know. It had sort of meh reviews with our buddy Roger Ebert likening it to one of Murray's previous efforts and the best Christmas film of all time, Scrooged. And mm-hmm. Roger, finally, I'm with you on something because I agree with that. <laughs> it is indeed the best Christmas film. Nah. Both McDowell and Murray's performances were praised. In fact, the film saw Murray transition from sort of straight comedy roles over to the more diverse filmography that you might latterly associate with him. It also picked up a smattering of awards, including Best Original Screenplay at the BAFTAs. So what I want to ask you first and foremost is, what would you guys do if you had to relive the same time loop over and over again? Would you use it to be a sexual predator or... or something else I don't know the interesting thing about this is I only watched this for the first time in lockdown because people kept making Groundhog Day jokes in lockdown Mm -hmm. because it sort of was Groundhog Day and I kept thinking oh I would definitely be the person who'd learn to play the piano but based on my experiences of what I actually did in lockdown I don't know that I actually would, given that there was loads of things I was going to do in lockdown. There's loads of things I was going to achieve. You know, hey, I'll learn to knit. Didn't. You know, all of that stuff. So I think what I like to think that I'd do and what I actually would do are probably two completely different things. I'd like to think that I would use it to, you know, learn a skill or do something, you know, like like he eventually gets around to doing. But in truth, I'd probably just get really drunk knowing that I'd never wake up with a hangover. Still haunted by Duolingo. Still haunted. (laughs) Mick, what about you? Well, the theory reckons that he is in that loop for 33 years is how long they reckon he was in that time loop. And so, yeah, that's a lot of tickling of Clarky Cat that could get done. 
I think Hannah's nailed it. It is a bit, we all got a little bit of Groundhog Day and yeah, everyone was like, I'm going to better myself. I'm going to better myself. I'm going to be a better per. Oh, it's, are we out again? I didn't, I didn't do anything. Oh, bums. But no, no to the sexual predator question, Jen. <laughs> what you could do is do things that you kind of always secretly suspect might be fun to do and then do them, you know, because you wouldn't have to live with the shame of what you'd done. Yeah. You know. So if, for example, you wanted to be a person to wonder what it would be like, not me, obviously, but to wonder what it'd be like to run naked through the street or something, that's something you could do, you know, knowing that there wouldn't be repercussions. Although presumably at every point he doesn't know whether or not... That's it, and it's really interesting within the film. There's no... That that theory is that... So Ramis and Rubin said it was 10,000, 10,000 revisits, and actually we see 38 in the film. And people have worked it out that it's probably about 33 years, right? Which is a, a long old time. But it's like day three when he drives the car as if to kill everyone. And you're like, mm. how are you so confident that this is going to keep going? <laughs> and like the running naked through the streets thing, like try that before you try running into a train or whatever, or yeah. driving off a cliff and all of those things. How confident do you have to be that tomorrow isn't going to be the day that is actually tomorrow before you do the the shame stuff, Hannah? Yeah, I've got a few questions, but uh, Hannah, you've just answered the first question. You'd seen it once before. Mickey, I'm pretty sure you have an affection for this film. You've seen it before. I'm sure we've talked about that. I have seen it before, but I do not have an affection for it. Oh, Which was really interesting. interesting. Uh, allow me to go a little bit Jen Offord. I saw this when it came out and it has got all the ingredients to be a total Mickey film. Absolutely. And I wanted to love it and I find it boring and I thought maybe that would change by watching it again and I haven't seen it in the interim because it's so well loved and I love the idea of it I love the concept I love everyone involved maybe Mm. not Andy McDowell although she is less annoying to me now than she used to be yeah 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 oh she's less annoying in this yes I reckon if I watched four weddings again I would still want to punch her in the face Had you seen it before, Jim? No, I'd never seen it before. I hadn't. If I had known that there was like a suicide lols section, I wouldn't have picked it. Because, as you know, I don't enjoy a suicide lols section. <laughs> and I think there are a few parts of this that don't stand up as well today as perhaps they did at the time, such as the sexual predator <laughs> element of it. But... There seems to have been like a massive source of contention in the production of it that I think is quite interesting. And I wondered if you thought it had retained any of the deeper meaning that that had been intended by Ruby. I don't really know what the deeper meaning... I could shine a little bit of light on you there and actually do a tiny bit of in defence of the suicide lol scenes, which I am mostly with you about that. But the theory behind Groundhog Day is it is actually to do with the five stages of death and dying which have erroneously been put upon Mm. the five stages of grief, but it's not. It's about death and dying. So the denial, anger, depression, and it's that is the depression bit of what Bill Murray's character is going through, what Phil Connor's going through. And it's when he reaches acceptance that he'll be relieved that it wasn't the day he chose to run naked through the streets that he gets the tomorrow kind of thing. So yeah, that is my slight defence of the suicide scenes because it is him just like I don't care anymore I'm depressed I don't want to be here and acting that out and that is the meaning put on the film and I actually think you can still see those stages I think they do stand up so I actually hadn't realized that but I think you can definitely see that there is deeper meaning in it 
from the fact that like he's basically you know he's a wanker and he, he initially decides he's, he's going to live his worst life and then he you know comes around to the idea that he's in fact gonna i don't know if it's his worst life jen it's just his actual life isn't it he's just continuing being a horrible person yeah and but i guess he ups the ante and stuff like there's yes. the scene where he eats all of the food that would be bad for him and they're like do you not care about like lung cancer because he's smoking yeah. and all of that and then there's a the scene where he does drive and he's very selfish he's incredibly selfish but like where he drives towards the train and it's like you're going to take out these dudes as well if there is a tomorrow kind of thing and it is he he kind of is worse and obviously he wasn't doing that he was just a massive arsehole yeah you know he didn't become like a serial killer or anything like that but he basically he doesn't improve and then eventually he decides he is gonna be better kind of thing he does sort of use his powers for bad in some ways like he manipulates that woman basically in order to get her to knob him so he comes back he's learned some stuff about her the day before and then he comes back and he uses it again and stuff like that that's the kind of stuff i'm talking about which yeah i don't think that stands up so well now but i wondered like i don't know maybe that's just an accurate reflection of of what a lot of people would do i don't know what did you think i think it, it for some people that would be what they would do and i guess it's that thing of like if i was stuck in the same day for 33 years can i predict what i would do no i can't but hopefully it wouldn't be that i think i'm a better character going into it than phil is going into it you know there's already been mm. hints of him being a bit skeezy before groundhog day actually starts but yeah i found that so awful what he does to nancy and what he does or tries to do to rita and what he does do to rita and also even with the happy ending she has got so yeah. much catching up to do because he has been in this mm. relationship for 30 years or for yeah yeah i've got a massive question that's mark the biggest over that. plot flaw yeah that's i think there are two massive plot flaws and that is one of yeah. them that, you know, how if this enormous thing that has come to define your entire life and yet you can't talk to someone about it? Either you can't talk to them about it because they wouldn't believe it or because it would reveal that everything that your relationship is built on is a lie. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he, he's got time We've to fall in there. love with her, hasn't he? She hasn't had time to fall in love with him. Oh, except she has because it's a rom-com. Hmm. <laughs> And that last day, the day that, that is the day that we'll have a tomorrow where she mm. decides that she is happy too. She's not even spent that much time with him because he's been off like no. saving everyone Playing in the community piano. all day. Exactly. They've had two exactly. hours at a party. Okay, okay, so that's the that's the second enormous plot flaw is that the end is basically, you know, he's become really familiar with the town, you know, and he's become really familiar with her. But the film expects you to believe that somehow he's become really familiar to them in the same time. They all greet him like he's an old friend. Mm, yeah. But he can only have seen any of them for a maximum of about 30 seconds. Yeah. Because he's just like careening through. Yeah. He's only had one piano lesson, not 33 or whatever. And she wouldn't say that's my pupil because mother of God. <laughs> She'd be like, this is some guy that turned up playing excellent piano. <laughs> And try to get into my house. He's a freak, right? <laughs> totally. Totally. And that's it. And obviously, Phil does better himself. The Phil at the end isn't a different Phil, but he is a better Phil in the way that we judge people's moral character, etc., etc. He mm. is less selfish. But everything he does is still self-serving. Everything yeah. he does mm. is still self-serving. It's still performative or at least that's how it comes across to me just to go back to something that, that i've already mentioned scrooged right 
Now, obviously, Scrooge, Scrooge is fantastic, but Scrooge. the story, the story of Scrooge, uh, you know, uh, Christmas Carol or whatever, he doesn't become nice. It's still like massively tied up in his ego. It's that he discovers that no one gives a fuck when he dies. That's the thing that makes him a better person. Yeah. It's not the fact that he suddenly grows a conscience. It's completely about his own vanity and ego. So that's kind of like another point where I think there are similarities. It's really interesting. I thought there were similarities to Scrooge as well. A lot because the guy who plays Buster, who is one of the people who talks to the groundhog, is the same guy who plays his dad in Scrooged. Hmm. I'm only four. It's the voice that did it for me. But also I was like, we spend a lot of time in Groundhog Day with Phil being an arsehole. And I don't find that fun to watch, even though I fucking love Bill Murray. This to me, Hmm. it wasn't, I didn't find it funny. I didn't laugh loads. I didn't laugh loads the first time. I didn't laugh loads this time, even though I love watching Bill Murray. And yet in Scrooged, we spend a lot of time with Bill Murray being an arsehole, but it's brilliant and it's funny and it makes me laugh and it feels, it doesn't have to be earnest with the film because A Christmas Carol has already kind of got the earnest built in, like the message is already built in. You mainly know what the story of A Christmas Carol is. Whereas this, I was just like, oh, just he's just being a prick to someone else. I'm kind of bored of watching this. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the women at all, the woman? I mean, she's all right, isn't she? She has a bit of agency, I suppose. I mean, the ending is not ideal, I don't think. But, like, she does say no to him. What happens every time the date goes bad? You know, when he's on the same day and she's like, and he goes to the groundhog and she goes, I always toast to world peace, knobber, do you? Okay, you sound like fun at parties. Anyway, so she's like, oh, and then date is over. And then when he laughs because she says she studied French poetry, date is over. Like, what actually happens on those days? Do the days just end? Do the dates just end kind of thing? So, yeah, she does have agency. But again, it's all... He's the main character. And he is the main character. But everyone else is just a bit player. Everything... what It all revolves around Phil. Which is something he's supposed to be learning isn't the case. So, yeah, I find it kind of weird. She does have agency. But only if it helps Phil learn to be a better Phil. Yeah. It is a great idea. And when we were talking about the Lazarus Project, there are questions, I think, that don't get answered in this, which is why, you know, it it could be a better film. Like, for example, the idea that you don't know that this is the last, because it goes on for so long, you know, because there are so many repeats and whatever, you spend so little time there. There's never any consideration of, for example, like all of the things that he does that would result in his death or somebody else's, of whether or not, like, he's thought... Oh, this time might be, it might be different. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's a great idea, just not particularly well executed. I've got to say, I desperately wanted to love this film. I wanted to love it the first time I watched it. I wanted the 20 years or however long, the 30 odd years since I've last seen it for it to make a difference and for me to love it this time. And I'm, I'm kind of gutted I don't because I do think it's a really solid concept and you can tell because it's become part of the lexicon, right? Groundhog Day. Mm. Everyone knows what that means also it's legacy stuff like russian doll there are so many programs and films that have Mm. taken groundhog day as an example and run with it and played with the idea it's baffling that it hadn't been done before 1993 to be honest but it was such a huge idea i mean it probably has in some weird french literature from (laughs) victorian period or something they're probably you know in the same way that there's a there is a precursor to 1984 Mm. You know, but everyone always assumes that 1984 was this act of genius that came out of nowhere. Maybe there is. 
like a, another version yeah. of Groundhog Day somewhere in the universe. But It's the first film that it feels like sacrilege that I don't like it. Well, Mick, I think you've made your feelings known there, but I might as well ask the question just just for the administrative purposes. <laughs> Is that dated from you? I don't actually think it's dated. I've got to say, I think the themes and the way it tackles it and actually the idea isn't dated. And like I say, that's made even more so by the fact it is still very much in modern popular culture, this idea of Groundhog Day and through lockdown. So I don't think it's dated but I didn't like it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for dated because I think, you know, would it be made now? Absolutely not. Because not only is he a really genuinely terrible kind of, you know, bit rapey person at the start, <laughs> you know, I don't think today's audiences would necessarily, or today's young audiences would necessarily want to see that character redeemed. They'd be like, no, he is irredeemable. Plus, I didn't like it. So, yeah, I'm going to say dated. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with everything you've both said. I'd never seen it before, and I'd, I think it is probably dated on balance, and I didn't particularly enjoy it. I did think it was quite boring as well, to be fair. What I do think, possibly, if I were to be generous... So one of the criticisms raised by the critics in reviews and whatnot is that it was tonally inconsistent. So, like, it couldn't make up its mind if it did want to be a bit deeper or if it did just want to be a rom-com. And I think it would have probably done better if it had kind of like picked a side and stuck with it. What was really interesting with the critics, you mentioned our old pal Roger Ebert and he's Mm. reviewed it twice. He went back and reviewed it again and said, I got it wrong Mm. the first time. It's brilliant and it's one of the best films. And he changed his mind. He said he thought about it and the fact that he kept thinking about it meant that he went and reviewed it again, which is quite interesting. Do you think he was stuck in a loop for 33 <laughs> years where he had to just keep watching it over and over it again? It was at the end. How do I get Sonny and Cher out of my head? Please make this stop. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, who's up next time? Tis I, <laughs> Leclerc. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of a time loop, I'm time travelling us back to 1963 and we are going to watch Hitchcock's The Birds. Oh, God. Ooh. Standard issue for all women.